be chapter 24. I don't want to throw any curveballs for you guys. Genesis 23. And as we get there this morning, I want to remind you of a few practical things. Uh, number one, praise the Lord with me. Um, the Lord has provided more chairs. And then at the same time, he's provided more parking. And that lot will be uh, nearing completion next week, Lord willing and weather willing. Um, <clears throat> but also, um, our youth will be meeting this evening from 5 to 7. And in this season, I want to remind you that our youth are planning to meet every Sunday night from 5 to 7. And then on the weeks, they'll give you plenty of notice. There will be a week, a month, where we'll have game night. And it will be on Saturday night instead of Sunday night. And so uh, if you're not a part of our Remind app with the reminders or on social media with Instagram or Facebook, that's the way that we send out information. And so um, if you want to be, be informed, make sure you find out how to get hooked up with those. Um, other than that, I think that's all the practical announcements. So turn with me to Genesis 23 as we uh, spend this bright, sunshiny morning. We're going to talk about everyone's favorite subject, and probably what most of the world has been trying to avoid for the last year, and that is death. And yet we all know that death is the period at the end of everybody's sentence on this earth. And yet Jesus Christ is the answer to death. He is life incarnate. He is the giver of life. And yet um, what we find out is that in Genesis 23, Abraham, though he is walking by faith, he still has to deal with death. And so uh, Genesis chapter 21, uh, we see Abraham being what many of you teachers would love to hear, a lifelong learner. And in Genesis chapter 21, we see Abraham learns to remove the fleshly works and sends Ishmael, the son of his, um, his concubine, or Hagar, who is uh, Sarah's servant, uh, they tried to help God fulfill his promise to Abraham and to Sarah by doing something that the world does. And yet in Genesis chapter 21, God is still teaching how to be holy. And one of the ways that Abraham learns how to be holy is to cast off the deeds and the consequences of the flesh. He says Ishmael will not be the one who takes on the inheritance of faith but Isaac will. He is the child of promise. And so in chapter 21, he learns to remove the fleshly works, and he sends out Ishmael, which we can easily look over that and go, well, that was probably no big deal. But if you're a father or a mother to send someone out of your home that you weren't really planning on sending out, that you have raised yourself, can be a, 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 an experience of death. And so here he is, he's learning to let go. And then in chapter 22, Abraham learns to surrender what God said, I'm going to give you this son as a gift, and he's going to inherit the promises that I've made to you. He, he's going to be the one that, that you're going to pass on these blessings to. And yet Abraham learns to surrender God's gift back to him. And if you remember in Genesis 22, that God actually told Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, your only son, your son whom you love, and I want you to take him to the mountains of Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him. 
and lest there be any confusion as a burnt offering. I want you to kill him. I want you to offer him up. And what he was saying is, do you love me more than you love your son or the gifts that I give you? See, that's, that's the problem with, uh, with us in our hearts. We oftentimes worship the, the giver of the gifts instead of the gift giver. Excuse me, no. That's the opposite. We worship the gift rather than the gift giver. And it's so easy because the gift is sitting there on our laps and it's something we've desired. Maybe it's even something you've prayed for. And maybe it's even something you never thought you would get and then you finally get it. And the Lord says, give it back to me. Burn it. Tear it down. And, and when he says that, it's a very final thing. You, you love this thing more than you love me. Are you willing to give it up? And what we found through that test is that Abraham actually had learned by this point in his life that giving things back to God is actually a place of more blessing than, than holding them tight. And Jesus would even later say, if anyone desires to keep his life, he must first give it up. And every, anyone who desires to keep his life, excuse me, to save his life, would actually lose it by saving it. And so all that to say 23 in Genesis ends up with Abraham learning to give up another thing. And while many believe that Genesis 22 is actually the, the toughest test of faith for Abraham, I would submit to you that in some ways, Genesis chapter 23 would be more difficult because as he gives up Sarah to death, and if anyone in here has lost a spouse, you could probably attest to this way better than I could. But giving up a spouse is giving up a piece of yourself. Because when God instituted marriage, it wasn't, it's, it's when two become one, God, what God knits together, let not man separate is what he said. And it's like if you took two pieces of paper, and this is a weak illustration, but you took that, that glue stick and you you put some on one side of the paper and you, you attach those two pieces of paper. This is weak. Like, this is glue stick glue. This isn't, you know, gorilla glue. This isn't uh, super glue. This isn't whatever it is your favorite glue is. It's not even duct tape, by all means. But if you stick two pieces of paper together with a weak glue stick and then you rip those pieces, you try to remove them from one another... Both of those individuals that became one sheet of paper will never be the same, no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you yearn for that. However a marriage dissolves, it, it leaves brokenness. It leaves different. You, you're changed. You walk into whatever else relationships you have with that scarring. And so Abraham, as he's getting ready to say goodbye, as he's going to mourn his wife, he's forever changed. This isn't his children, and we love our children, don't get me wrong, but I don't know about you guys, but no matter what happens in my life, I want to talk to my wife about it. And as he's going to get ready to go through these future stages in his life, he's going to always have that, oh, I need to call, oh, they're not there. Oh, I need to talk to, I wonder what, not there. And so that being said, Abraham's going to be tested even more in his faith as he gives up his, his beloved, the closer relationship than he's had with any other human being. Sarah knew everything about Abraham. The good, the bad, the ugly, the stinky, the annoyances, 
I mean, married couples, you know what I'm talking about. Like, no matter what, you marry a person and they've sold themselves way higher than they actually were, even if they, with the best intentions. And then you find out when they walk around the house, they're, le- they're letting out uh, certain fumes, you know, and it could be fumes on purpose and it could be that they just stink. You know, proximity does some things. You learn things about your spouse that, that no one else gets to know. Look at it that way. No one else gets to know this. You know their weaknesses. You know how they respond to situations. And all of those things lead to either uh, further apart from one another or uh, it, it builds the relationship. It strengthens it because nobody else gets to know that stuff. And nobody else should know that. Stuff. I don't want to know. And so all that said, Genesis chapter 23 begins stating that Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is, we would know it as Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So he learns to store up his treasures, in this case, in Canaan. What's interesting is many people in this culture were sojourners, and they would always bury their family wherever they came from. So it would actually make more sense for Abraham to bury Sarah where they came from, their nation of their originality. And yet what we find out is that he actually ends up purchasing property in the land that they're not even citizens of. They're sojourners. They're foreigners. And, and what he does is he bargains with a local man to buy some property to bury his family. And he's essentially making a down payment saying, this is where God has called us to be. And even though we're sojourners and foreigners, I'm going to bury my wife here. And eventually I'm going to be buried here. And eventually their sons are going to be buried there. And, and what's really interesting about that is it's, it's faith. Because while they, weren't, they were sojourners and they were foreigners in this land, they were also foreigners just due to the fact that the language that they lived. They weren't like the Canaanites. They were called to be different than the rest of the world. They were called to no longer live as Babylonians, no longer to be idol makers, they were called to be different, and the, they weren't even supposed to have mixed marriages. If you, if you remember, or excuse me, I'm a spoiler alert, chapter 24, God's going to tell, um, Abraham's going to tell his servant Eleazar, I want you to get a wife for my son Isaac, but don't get him from here. I, I want him to be, I want, I want his wife to be someone from where we came from so that we don't have to reprogram all the religious beliefs. And so all that to say, In in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, Jesus said, Don't store your treasures here on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but instead store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we think of treasure, we think of cars or our stuff or trophies or, you know, whatever you might call it. Uh, But in this case, the treasures that he is storing up are the treasures of, by the way, the only thing that you and I can take to heaven. And that's people, that's souls. And so, interestingly enough, if you turn to Hebrews in chapter 11, in the hall of faith, 
it says there in verse 11 of Hebrews 11, that by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, who promised? God had promised them, Yahweh. And yet, therefore, from one man and him as good as dead. That's the scripture saying very politely, he was old as dirt. Were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And what it says in verse 13 is, as it wraps up this verse 4 through um, 12 of Hebrews 11, speaking of all of these patriarchs, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, because their promise had way more to do with Jesus than they even knew, but having seen them afar off, the promises, they were assured of them, they embraced the promises, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So they lived on the earth as if they were not citizens of earth. And I don't know about you guys, but that teaches me something about what's going on politically right now. We should do as much as depends upon us to have a godly impact on our political and government. But at the same time, at the end of the day, here's how you sleep at night. Recognize that the kingdom that you are actually a citizen of, card-carrying members of, you'll be there forever no matter what happens in this life, is the kingdom of God because of what Jesus has done. He's provided the kingdom, and he will sanctify you, preparing you for the kingdom, and he will save you for that day when you go into the kingdom. You'll have entrance no matter what. If in this life, 1 Corinthians 15, we have hope only, then we are of all men most pitiable. By the way, that whole chapter in Corinthians is about our hope that is in the resurrection from the dead. And so all that to say, as we begin the chapter, we see that Sarah, by the way, men take note, this is the only woman in the Bible that it gives her age at death. So if you're writing obituaries, it's okay to do that. She won't know. She's with Jesus. But Sarah's the only woman in the Bible whose age of death is recorded. I find that interesting. We don't know that about Mary. We don't know that about Ruth. We don't know that about Esther. We know that about Sarah, the mother of the faithful. And what's interesting is in 1 Peter in chapter 3, in verse 3, it says this to women who would submit to their husbands. Look at Sarah as an example. It says, Do not let your adornment be only outward, arranging your hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are 
if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. She submitted to her husband, and that was her testimony of a faithful witness of Jesus. But what's interesting is that many of you might go, well, that's great, but Sarah didn't have my husband. But I want you to be honest about Abraham and go back and read Abraham's story. Maybe Sarah did have your husband. <laughs> I mean, the dude gave away his wife to someone else's harem because he didn't want to die. Like, he, he did some pretty fumbly things. And so all that to say, uh, Sarah is held up in Scripture as someone that wives should model their lives after, and women in general. But notice where she died. She died in a place called Hebron. Now, it was called Kirjath Arba in the land, but Abraham named it Hebron. And the word for Hebron actually means fellowship or community. So she died in fellowship with God where he took her. She died walking with God and staring, staying where he had her to be. The place of fellowship with God, by the way, was in Canaan, which is a picture in Scripture of the world. She wasn't separating herself from the world. She was in the world, but in fellowship with God. But she died seemingly, and this is just a point for meditation, she died without Abraham by her side. This is very sad to me. If my wife was passing away or even sick, you know where I want to be? I want to be right next to her. Not because I can do anything about it, but if something were to happen, I just want to be there. I want to be present. And yet, for whatever reason, Abraham was not. But I want to remind you that God was. Her father in heaven was with her. She did not die alone. And for those in the Lord, if you die alone physically, you are not alone spiritually. God is with us, Emmanuel. That's the good news. But I say that she died seemingly without Abraham by her side, because as you look in verse 2, it says, And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So he came. Okay, so that could be conjecture. But if you look at the end of chapter 22, it says there in verse 19, Abraham, having obeyed God, offered up his son. God provided himself a sacrifice. And it says, Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to not Hebron, but Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So I don't know if you can see it, but on, on the screen, I have there for you a map of the distance from Beersheba all the way to Moriah, which was about 50 miles. So about halfway between there is Hebron, and that's where Sarah died, close to Mamre, which is also a place that um, Abraham had named. And so whether or not that was the case, Abraham came to Sarah to weep openly for her. Uh, men, it's okay to cry. Tears are cleansing. They're actually healthy. Uh, they're good for us. Now, some of you are more sensitive than I am, and I long to be a little bit more sensitive. But some of you uh, haven't, haven't cried in years. Uh, let, ask the Lord to change that in you. Some of the times that I've felt the best is after I get a good cry in. It's, it's manly. It's actually manly to cry. The father of faith knew that he had hope, knew that he was where God took him to be, but he still wept. As a matter of fact, you want to think about the most manly guy in the Bible, who do you think about? 
It should be Jesus, right? That's the Sunday school answer. Some of you were thinking like Samson. You know, some of you might have been thinking about uh, King David slaying Goliath, and apparently he had killed uh, tigers or lions with his bare hands. That's pretty manly. But Jesus, in chapter uh, 11 of John, verse 35, he weeped. And you know what the circumstances were? One of his best friends had died. Actually, a friend of some of his best gal pals had died. Mary Magdalene and, and Martha were there, and, and they had asked him to come. And being the good friend that he was, he didn't come right away. He waited three days. He waited until Lazarus died. Doesn't seem like the best friend if you can heal people. And yet when he gets there, what he does is he, he sees the situation. He knows he's getting ready to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. And the first thing he does is he cries. Now, he's not making it up. This isn't fake cry, you know, work yourself into a froth because you're an actor. He cries because he's broken over the condition that the world is in. And that good, you know, Jesus is even crying over, why do good people die? He, he's broken over sin and what it does to people. It, it kills them because of disease and famine and flood and all those things. It actually affects the heart of God. And yet knowing he was getting ready to raise Lazarus that day, in moments, he cries anyway. And so what I want to take you to is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As Paul the Apostle writes to the Thessalonians about the second coming of Jesus. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church and he says... But I do not want you to be ignorant. That's a good thing. Teachers want to teach us stuff, right? They don't want us to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That's what they call death in the Bible, falling asleep. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And that's the key, right? If you're not in Jesus, you sleep. That is, you're going to be judged at the second death. But for those who sleep in Jesus, there is hope in the resurrection. For this we say, verse 15, to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means go before those who are asleep. So there's this order to the resurrection. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, those who have already passed before us, they get to rise first. They're the first fruits. Um, uh, and then, we who are alive, and remain shall be caught up, harpazo or harpuzo, the idea of the word of rapture, we will be caught up immediately together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Which some of you that are afraid of heights, that might freak you out. I don't know about you guys, but I, I'm a little freaked out at heights. I actually think that's why I'm short. Um, but then he says... Um, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's the comfort. In the, with the Lord in this life and with the Lord for eternity. That's our hope. 
Therefore, he says, with this information, comfort one another with these words. Now, that's a word for today. Many people are getting sick. Many people are afraid of death. And I'm not going to say that I'm not afraid to die at all. But with this word in mind, this is a sword in battle to remind me, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go. And, and I'm going to be with Jesus. Paul even would say later in his life, to live is, in Christ is Christ, but to die is great gain. They're both good, but one's eternal and one's temporary. This life is temporary. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus actually said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So verse 3. It's going to speed up a little bit here. Verse 3. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead, and he spoke to the sons of Heth. These are some local community members saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Interesting, because Jesus was prophesied about in Psalm 16, verse 10, where it says that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption, which makes me think of Abraham wanting to have his dead buried out of his... He doesn't want to watch corruption take over his wife's body. He doesn't want to see her, uh, her slowly decay. He wants to have her buried out of his sight. Verse 5 says, The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. He was seen as a prince among his neighbors. He had good neighbor relationships. Verse 7, Then Abraham stood up, he bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, then hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price. He does not ask for favors from the people of Canaan. He doesn't beg them to give them a bargain. He says, give me the land, but give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth. So this is a city council meeting, if you will. This is how they would make decisions. And scripture says in the Old Testament, by the, the establishment of two witnesses, at an event, that's how you would establish something. They wouldn't have a contract. They would have witnesses. And they would do these things, these, these deals in the city gate so that everybody would be around and go, nope, that's so-and-so's property. Uh, my cousin's aunt's uncle's was, was there when they made the agreement. And so there wouldn't be this big archive of paper, though there was the written word at the time. There would be the testimony of witnesses that were there when the agreement was made. And so... In the presence of these men, the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. 
So he's being emphatic. Just take the land. Now, why isn't Abraham just taking it for free? Why look a gift horse in the mouth, right? Well, because Abraham doesn't want it given to him. I don't know about you guys, but I will not give to my wife that which costs me nothing. It feels cheap. If it doesn't cost me sacrifice, is it really an act of love? And at the same time, later on, this is to me a foretaste of David when he's in Je the Jebusite territory, which would eventually become Jerusalem. He's on the threshing floor of a man and he's getting ready to purchase property, to build an altar, to worship God. And the man says, you can have it because he's the king, right? And the king, King David, says, I will not give to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Sell it to me at the full price. It's an offering to the Lord. He, he's going to own it. And no one could ever say he worshiped God with stuff that other people gave him. He, he worshiped God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. It's mine to give as an offering. He's not just giving it because it didn't cost him anything. And so Abraham bowed himself down before the people. He humbles himself. In verse 14, Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land's worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So what's taking place here is a Middle Eastern deal. They love the art of haggling. They love it. And if you don't haggle with them, you put them off a little bit. They don't want to sell anything to you. So what would happen in these, in these uh, dealings is that the seller offers to give the land for free. He doesn't really mean to give it for free. That's just how the bargaining begins. And then the buyer always refuses the handout. No, no thanks. Uh, tell me what it's worth to you. And then the seller suggests a, he calls it a bargain price. Well, you know, this is what it's worth, but whatever. Except that bargain price is typically the fool's price. Nobody pays that. If you go to Jerusalem and you go into the market and you just pay what's on there, they will make fun of you because it's not worth that. They, they, they want to bargain. That's their culture. In our culture, we always set the price high because we know that somebody's going to ask for less. And they always go, what's your bottom dollar? And my answer is always like, you know, whatever the thing is, I have a portion less that I'll take. But then after that, that's really my bottom dollar. Um, but the haggling starts at the fool's price. But Abraham doesn't even go there. He doesn't haggle. He, he pays the fool's price. Uh, number one, he doesn't want to haggle for something he's going to bury his wife in. That's, that's awkward. Um, but number two, his attitude is that God's not broke. He doesn't need me to get a gift from you to do his will. So I'm not going to haggle. I, I have plenty of money to do what matters to me, is what Abraham's saying. And in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 14, uh, it says, the buyer says, oh, this is a terrible thing. It's junk. And th this is my paraphrase. And then he walks away going, hey, did you see the deal I got? Did you see how great I did? A Abraham's not doing that. And in Romans chapter 12, 
God teaches us how to be um, good Christians in the world. Romans chapter 12. As a uh, foreigner in this land, here's how, how we're to deal with our neighbors. Romans 12 verse 16. That's not the verse. It wasn't supposed to be 16. Oh, well. Verse 18? You'd think I didn't type my own notes. Verse 18 says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I guess that's it. Oops. I wonder if it's verse 6. Oh, well. Anyway, like I said, it was going to be awesome. And it was, right? So then we go on to uh, another thing. He was known among his neighbors as courteous, as fair, and as prudent toward his neighbors in business dealings. Uh, Verse 7 through 9 points this out. Abraham stood up. He bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. He spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with me that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of this field. Let him give it to me as a full price, as property for a burial place among you. And then Ephron, as a result of this, will never be able to say that he was cheated by Abraham because Abraham was willing to pay the full price or that he didn't pay what it was worth. Remember, Abraham knows that eventually he's going to own it all anyway. So he never wants to say that he was a cheater or that he, perhaps, as a racial slur, Jewed him down. The father of faith didn't do that. He, he never haggled, at least in this. And if you remember, there was a time in Genesis 14 where the king of Sodom himself, the richest guy in the region, came to Abraham and said, thanks for saving my people and my stuff. Give me my people back and you can have all the spoils. And Abraham said, I will not take even a sandal strap from you, lest one day you would look upon me and say, of course he's rich. I made him rich. Never be able to say that. He had good dealings with them. So he pays him the full price, verse 16. But then in verse 17, the field of Ephron which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. So it was established. So I have this picture for you because in, in uh, just a few months ago, as we were looking at the property, and we were looking at this land up here to buy for the church, I I didn't know what to do because I felt like the price that was being asked for the property was too high. And we had thought about it when we first moved into the place. I think Ronnie and I were talking about, man, we need some more space for parking. And so he pointed at that spot. I was like, ah, I don't think there's enough space up there. And who knows what they want for it. But where else do we go, right? And so as we're looking at it, we notice it. And then I find out the property owner's information check into it a little bit further, and no doubt, the guy wanted more for the property than I thought it was worth. And so I prayed about it. Lord, what do you want us to do? Um, I don't want to leave a bad taste in this guy's mouth, 
but I also don't want to be a bad steward of your money. And so I prayed about it. And as I was praying for the property, the Lord gave me Genesis 23, verse 16, where it says that Abraham paid the full price. And I said, okay, Lord, it's your money, right? You got the cattle on a thousand hills. If you want to move a couple cattle and pay for it, what's that to me? And so we paid the full price. And a lot of people, even in our culture, would say, that's the fool's price. But guess what? I'm going to do what the Lord tells me. And at the end of the deal, no one can ever say that we tried to cheat someone or that we, in order to help out God, asked for a bargain. It makes me sick to my stomach when Christians beg the world to help God out. It makes me sick. Not because we shouldn't be good stewards, by the way. Not because those aren't godly people, but because I feel like it makes people feel like we all got to help God. And God's powerful and he's mighty. And if he wanted to, something could have happened with that property, could have got deeded to us. God's the God of the impossible. And so all that said, as we close the chapter in verse 17, it says, so the field of Ephron was in Machpelah. And then it lists out the borders Everything about the property, it's like we're reading the tract of land in the description. And verse 18 says, It was deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the city gate. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. It was, it was zoned for burial, you might say. So Machpelah is the only land that Abraham ever purchased in the land God promised Abraham. The entire nation of Israel, only one piece was bought with money. Abe didn't spend his life trying to acquire the rest and help God out. He already learned that lesson. God doesn't need help. And the only property that he owned on earth was a grave. By the way, no matter what property you own, it's only a property that can contain death. That's it. That's all our property amounts to. It's all going to burn up, Isaiah teaches. So notice, of all those buried in this place, I think this is interesting. Sarah's the first, and then Abraham. And then Isaac will eventually be buried there, the son of promise, and his wife, Rebekah. And then their son, who is the inheritor of the promise, Jacob, whom Israel is named after. And then Leah, which I found interesting because he wanted to marry Rachel first, and yet Leah married him first, and God sees that, it seems, as his wife. So Leah's buried there as well. They all ended up buried in this cave on this property. And many of you have already read ahead, but what Genesis teaches us is that <laughs> Genesis ends with a full tomb. And yet the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene, and it ends with an empty tomb. I stole that from Warren Wearsby. I didn't come up with that. So praise the Lord that even in a chapter of death, it's pointing once again to eternal life. And so, Father, we thank you for Abraham, the father of the faith, that many of us can relate to more than we would want to talk about. We thank you for Sarah's life, who was uh, a woman who, uh, who had her flaws and failures, but who submitted to her husband 
And because of that, she obtained the promise. And so, Lord Jesus, we, we confess to you that we have hope in heaven, and yet this world tends to get our focus off of our eternal place, our eternal dwelling, and focused on what this life has to bring. And yet, again, if our hope is in this life, then we are to be pitied because this life is a vapor. And even those who live apparently to be 127 years old, and then they die. But Jesus, I thank you that though you died, yet you now live, and it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ that lives in me and in us and through us. And so, Lord, we have an amazing hope. So, Father, in the valley of the shadow of death where we live, in the presence of fear and brokenness and sickness and the threat of death and the threat of the last breath and what's going to happen after me, Lord, help us to cling to life everlasting. That's a free gift. In Jesus' name, amen.